Welcome to FEPS Talks, a podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Good afternoon to everyone in Europe. Good morning in the US. Welcome to another edition of FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. My name is Vasilis Dusas. I'm the Senior International Relations Policy Advisor at FEPS, and I'm extremely fortunate and honored to welcome to today's episode Professor Stephen Wolt, who is the Robert and Renee Bolfer Professor of International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. Amongst many other things, he's a contributing editor of Foreign Policy Magazine, and uh, he's the author of a number of books on foreign policy, including his most recent, The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite, and The Decline of U.S. Primacy, which came out in 2018. Professor Walt, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. It's really a pleasure to have you, given what is happening in the U.S. Uh, at the moment, but also given the importance of the outcome of the election beginning of November in shaping the future posture of U.S. foreign policy, which will be the topic of our discussion today. Let me start with a question that concerns domestic U.S. politics. In your latest article in Foreign Policy, you argued that President Trump's re refusal to concede that he lost the election and the fact that more and more Republicans form ranks around Trump, uh, backing a legal push to contest Biden's victory, or the, at least the legitimacy of it, reveals a shocking disregard for the foreign policy and national security implications of these actions. And uh, we also saw recently the official GOP Twitter account tweeting deeply responsible, perhaps dangerous statements regarding the election outcome. So I'd be very interested to hear what you think might be the short term, but also the medium to long term implications of all this. Well, it is deeply disturbing. And in fact, I find it somewhat baffling that the Trump administration and the president himself and much many members of the Republican Party seem to be acting as though the United States doesn't face any international challenges at all. And therefore, they can indulge in whatever sort of uh, political shenanigans they are doing here at home without any thought for what the consequences are. I mean, the most obvious and immediate one is by refusing to concede the election and begin an orderly transition process. They are preventing President-elect Biden and his team from basically being brought up to date on what current developments are, what the latest intelligence is on various international problems, what the state of play in different international uh, negotiations might be, what they're hearing from other foreign leaders. None of that uh, is happening in the orderly fashion, which has always uh, occurred when there's been a presidential transition. Now, one thing that mitigates that a little bit is that uh, you know President-elect Biden is a very experienced politician. He's been there uh, not that long ago. Uh, most of the members of his uh, team, if not all of the members of his team, are also quite experienced, quite knowledgeable, and, and well-informed. This is not a bunch of rookies who are coming in for the first time and will really need to get spun up on things. But nonetheless, it's not, uh, it's certainly not good. And the second part of this, of course, is they're also not being brought up to speed to where we are in terms of uh, pandemic preparations, uh, trying to deal with COVID-19, and in particular, any uh, arrangements that have been made, that have been begun 
for uh, eventually beginning to roll out a vaccine. I mean, the good news we've all gotten in recent weeks is that there does appear to be several uh, highly effective vaccines available. And now it's just a question of how soon they can be produced and how quickly they can be distributed uh, to populations around the world. Presumably the Trump administration, or at least people in the government, have started to think about that problem. But until we have an administration that's willing to talk to their successors, uh, then the Biden team, which will be responsible for actually implementing those plans, probably developing plans of its own, as well is going to be uh, later. Uh, it's going to be less effective. And that means more Americans will die as a result because the vaccines won't get rolled out as efficiently. And that's entirely the fault of the incumbent uh, president who uh, you know, is uh, persisting in both his denial, uh, his false claims that he somehow won the election, and these various uh, legal and political shenanigans he's engaged in to try and somehow cling to office illegally. And, you know, again, it uh, to me, in the short term, it can only have, um, have negative consequences. The long term, it's harder to say. I think the biggest long-term problem is that this is simply going to deepen the degree of polarization and political dysfunction uh, that are, is present in the United States. And that's going to make it harder for any administration, Democratic or Republican, but let's talk about the next one, which will be the Biden administration, to take decisive steps in a whole series of areas uh, that would be beneficial to the country. Uh, and that means uh, things like you know uh, developing a genuine infrastructure plan to rebuild some of America's uh, crumbling infrastructure. That means providing sufficient support uh, for scientific and technological research so that the United States can maintain its technological lead. Uh, that means uh, having uh, a healthcare system that keeps Americans healthier because a healthier population is a more economically productive one. Uh, it could mean the difficulty of actually getting a um, further stimulus package to get us through this winter until the vaccines uh, are there. So all of these things are going to hurt America's long-term competitiveness, and it's a function of the inability of the political system uh, to you know, sort of make intelligent decisions, uh, reach compromises, move forward. And that, I think, is going to be hurt by this continued you know, intensification of polarization. The one final thing I'll say is that the United States, I, I don't want to exaggerate uh, the importance of what is sometimes called soft power, but the United States has gotten some benefits over the last 50 or 60 years, if not uh, further than that, uh, from being seen as something of a model for others, as a country that worked pretty well, not perfectly, uh, but worked uh, pretty well, and that was committed to a certain set of values that many others around the world uh, admired and to some degree aspired to. And what we are going through now is tarnishing the American brand uh, extraordinarily. I mean, what country who is, that was thinking about uh, becoming a democracy would turn to the United States and say, well, that's how we want our political system to operate. Um, and I think the, the long-term costs of that are not trivial because one of the things that gives the United States uh, a certain amount of influence in the world, in addition to its power, economic wealth, military capabilities, things like that, is the impression that we kind of know what we're doing and that we know how to run our own country reasonably well. And when you go off to an international meeting and you offer advice on what other countries ought to do, they're more likely to take it seriously. Um, the bungled response to the pandemic and the political dysfunction at home uh, is making it much easier for other countries to ignore 
whatever advice Americans might want to offer them. Uh, and that's ultimately not good for the country either. This is one side of things. But of course, another important side is even if it takes the GOP a little bit of time to eventually come around and accept this result, the fact is that the November election meant that the U.S. fired its CEO, but only its CEO, uh, if we can put it this way. I'm also asking this because of the election you know, result might have produced an emphatic electoral college victory for President-elect Biden. But of course, down-ballot races, not least at Senate House level, um, have not been as favorable to him or the Democrats, for that matter. Um, we have the two crucial upcoming Senate elections in Georgia. We have the House majority of the Democrats being slimmer than many uh, had predicted. How do you expect uh, this aspect to affect, um, if not restrain, the incoming administration in terms of the scope of the agenda it will pursue, but also the, the ambition underlying this agenda? I think it's uh, inevitably going to have uh, serious problems. I mean, the most optimistic case from the Democratic point of view is that they win both of the seats in Georgia and therefore there's essentially an even balance, 50-50 in the Senate, and uh, Kamala Harris as vice president then has the deciding vote. So, you know, in the event of a tie, the Democrats could win, but that assumes, of course, that every one of the 50 Democrats supports whatever the legislation is, and some Democrats are probably uh, going to be disinclined to support some of the things that other Democrats uh, might want to do. So even in the most optimistic of scenarios, it's going to be very difficult to push forward any kind of really ambitious uh, legislation, uh, particularly if that legislation might have uh, an impact on the long-term political power of either the Republican or the Democratic Party. Electoral reform, which is badly needed in the country, uh, is going to be much harder in a situation where you have a 50-50 split in the Senate. Uh, and many of the other things you might want to do at home, uh, whether it's changing the tax code to reduce inequality, uh, you know, really far-reaching criminal uh, justice reform, uh, bolstering the Affordable Care Act, et cetera. All of those things are going to be difficult. Uh, it may be difficult to get people confirmed into position. This, I think, creates a real paradox uh, for the Biden administration as they take power. If you can't do very much at home, the temptation is then to try and do a lot more in foreign policy, uh, where presidents have much more latitude, have lots more uh, authority uh, to do things, much can be done with executive orders, etc. The problem uh, Biden faces there is that uh, Americans ultimately don't care very much about foreign policy, and there are no great low-hanging fruit that are going to make Americans suddenly go, well, that's just wonderful, that makes my life a whole lot better. Uh, nothing like that on the foreign policy front. So he can't make himself or the Democrats substantially more popular by going out and doing a lot of things in foreign policy, even if they are the right things uh, to do. Most Americans just won't, won't care. And in fact, if he has a big foreign policy agenda, he might even get accused of neglecting the home front while he runs around the world doing things. And I also don't believe in midst of a pandemic and with a 77 or 78-year-old president, there's going to be a lot of running around the world anyway. So he can do a lot on foreign policy and it won't help him politically, or he can try and do things at home and he won't get very much done. This is a very uh, difficult circumstance. I think the best thing that Biden can do is, I mean, he will do a variety of things in foreign policy, and I assume we'll talk about those in a moment, but the best thing he can do is 
focus enormous attention on getting uh, us past the pandemic, getting the vaccine rollout right, getting it rapid, getting it uh, done so that, uh, you know, six to eight months after he's inaugurated, we are going back about our business in a more or less normal fashion. And second, following from that, uh, that'll restart the American economy and he can help that in a, in a number of ways. If he does that, so if uh, two years into his presidency, the American economy is coming back uh, strongly and people are now uh, able to live normal lives, that will put the Democrats in a pretty good position in the 22 midterms, 2022 midterms. And at least in the Senate, there are far more Republicans up for re-election in 2022 than Democrats. So in a sense, he's got to focus on getting us out of the pandemic, getting the economy restarted, and then try to flip the Senate in 2022. At that point, you can try to do more ambitious things uh, domestically. In terms of foreign policy, I think it means just do everything you can to avoid unpleasant surprises, uh, but that's not always possible. The rest of the world does get a voice. So a difficult road ahead paved with good intentions, but <laughs> a difficult road nonetheless. Um, specifically on foreign policy, I think you talked about the restraints the Biden administration will, will face. Um, you certainly hinted at some things that should inform a new U.S. approach but perhaps on that, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what should inform this new U.S. approach, especially in light of a risen, not only rising China and this sort of sentiment of rising great power competition. Well, I think the, the sense that uh, the United States and China are, in fact, serious competitors and that that's not going to change for a long time is now the one of the few sort of bipartisan areas of agreement uh, in the United States. Uh, and I happen to think that's also correct, that uh, the two most powerful countries in the world are always going to have a somewhat wary relationship. Uh, China is rising rapidly and increasingly ambitious. Uh, the United States has not declined uh, in any uh, sort of really substantial way. It's still very wealthy, very powerful as well. And those two countries are going to be jockeying for position on a whole, on a whole series uh, of issues. Uh, I'd even go further and say that China poses a greater challenge for the United States than at any other time in our history, or certainly uh, since the 1900s or so, much greater challenge than the old Soviet Union in some respects, because unlike the Soviet Union, which was uh, you know, hampered by a Marxist-Leninist approach to economics, uh, China is essentially a state capitalist country with a very dynamic economy as well, and three to four times our population. Um, so it's a much bigger problem than the Soviet Union uh, ever was. And uh, you can already see the amount of international influence China has gained because, uh, because of that in ways that the Soviet Union uh, never really could. So China is going to have to be uh, the focus, uh, a main focus of a Biden administration. Uh, what's interesting is uh, also to see how they're going to go about doing it. They're not going to go back to the 1990s, let's engage China. China and hope it becomes democratic and hope it becomes a responsible uh, stakeholder. The challenge they are going to face is competing effectively uh, with China on areas of high technology uh, in terms of military competition, in terms of maintaining 
uh, close strategic partnerships with various uh, countries in Asia, where I think China will try to drive wedges uh, and discourage uh, that in various ways. Doing all of those sort of classic great power competition uh, things, while at the same time walling off the areas where the United States and China should continue to cooperate. And the most obvious one here is climate change. Uh, These two enormous economies uh, that both generate enormous amounts of greenhouse gases. If we are not able to work with the Chinese and of course many other countries uh, to come up with a program and a plan and implement that, uh, then future generations uh, and indeed human existence on the planet are gonna be unalterably affected. And regardless of what the state of Sino-American relations are on other issues, on South China Sea, on arms control, on dealing with Korea, you name it, uh, we have to be able to cooperate on issues uh, like uh, like climate. I would also add that to some degree, uh, you know, uh, uh, agreements on how to prepare for the next pandemic, because there will be another one at some point. We've had four or five in the last 30 years. Uh, so COVID is not the last time something like this is going to happen. And it would be nice if next time around the world was better prepared for this. And that involves the United States and China and many other countries uh, doing it as, as well. So a big challenge for Biden will be you know, competing effectively with China, but not doing so in a way that either raises the risk for war or prevents cooperation uh, on other areas. There are lots of other uh, places where a Biden administration is going to have to or is going to want to change uh, how it approaches the world. But I think China is going to end up uh, occupying a great deal of their time and attention. So, but in light of this, and of course, in light of what you described accurately as the absolute necessity for the U.S. and China to engage, cooperate in the framework of the climate crisis, the future pandemic, and so on. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what you expect, how you expect Washington to engage regarding multilateralism. And this is an area close to the heart of many Europeans, an area where many Europeans and most national capitals in Europe felt that they had to shoulder the burden of sustaining during the Trump administration and an area where President Trump himself used um, a hammer, not a scalpel, confirming the old saying that if a hammer is all you know how to use, then uh, everything looks like a nail. So what's your take on this? Uh, What do you think will be the next chapter in U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis multilateralism? Also taking into account what you also accurately described as the fact that Trump may be gone, but Trumpism is here to stay. Elements like nationalism, isolationism, protectionism might still take root deeply in the American psyche going forward. Well, there's some good news here with some cautionary notes. Uh, I mean, the good news is that Biden, to a first approximation, is putting the old Obama band back together. And it's going to be a very familiar team of uh, pretty experienced foreign policy people, all of whom, as near as I can tell, are strongly committed to the basic idea of multilateralism, of uh, working with America's allies around the world to try and fashion joint uh, joint responses. Uh, they like democracies. They like uh, cooperating with allies. Uh, they think American leadership in sort of pulling everyone together uh, on common projects is the right way to go. And I think they are aware 
and the Trump administration has proven this, that on some of these issues, you're actually much more effective if you're doing this in partnership with others. So Trump, I think, correctly understood that something had to be done about some of China's economic practices, and in particular, some of the ways it dealt with intellectual property, restrictions it placed on foreign investment and things like that. That was fine. Uh, Trump's error was to think that the way to do approach China was to do it unilaterally, was to you know, slap tariffs on China and um, you know, paw the earth and uh, complain a lot, uh, while at the same time picking trade fights with most of our other trading partners, with Japan, with South Korea, with Canada, with Mexico, with the European Union, instead of getting all of those other countries on our side and then confronting China together and saying, you know, you have to change some of what you're doing. So I think the, the Biden team's instinct here is to work with others, and they recognize that if China is as serious a challenge as uh, people believe, you're much better off doing that with others than trying to do it more or less uh, alone. And that's certainly true in the economic realm, and it's probably even more true in the sort of strategic uh, and security realm. So the good news is there's going to be a, a sort of embrace of, of multilateralism. I expect them, you know, they'll rejoin the Paris Climate Accord almost uh, immediately. Uh, I think they will be very interested in promoting some kind of trade reform within the World Trade Organization. The uh, Trump administration has basically been trying to gut the World Trade Organization uh, entirely. Uh, Biden will be, I think, willing to co- uh, rejoin the World Health Organization, possibly the COVAX initiative which is a global uh, vaccination initiative as well. So in that sense, uh, they're coming back uh, to a much more familiar view of America's role in the world and working uh, with others. The only cautionary note I'll make here is that just because you want to engage multilaterally doesn't mean that the issues get any easier to solve, right? (laughs) So you know, I don't think he's going, uh, Biden by nature is not going to be uh, the sort of petulant uh, bully that Trump has tried to be. Uh, he will not go pick fights with, you know, a German chancellor. Uh, he won't act rudely uh, at, uh, in various ways. He won't accuse other foreign leaders of things uh, in the way that Trump has. The style is going to be entirely different. But there are a whole series of big issues on you know, digital architecture, on privacy, on the role of big technology, uh, on the burden sharing question that always uh, troubles relations with our European allies, etc. Those things aren't going to go away, uh, even if you have a team that is more inclined to try and work out agreements on them. Uh, as opposed to just posture and threat. And speaking of allies, I guess it's important to turn to to Europe. As I like to say, and it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, um, America has just elected probably the most pro-transatlantic president in decades. But realistically, what can we expect from U.S. engagement with Europe post-2020? Also in light of what you described as real obstacles, real differences, real frictions, digital, trade, uh, the European Green Deal, equivalent in the U.S., you know, this could be real points of contention going forward. Well, much of what I just uh, just said applies here. I mean, certainly the atmospherics of the transatlantic relationship will improve dramatically, with one or two exceptions. You know, Trump was very popular in countries like Poland. But for most of Europe, uh, not only was the sort of favorable image of the United States declining dramatically uh, under President Trump, he was historically unprecedented 
low levels of trust by European populations. Um, so uh, as he exits the White House, there will be, I think, this enormous sigh of relief. Uh, you know, maybe not in London either, because uh, Boris Johnson had gone to some lengths to, uh, you know, accommodate uh, Trump as, as well. But in general, uh, the overall atmospherics, I think, are going to be substantially different. The Biden administration will, will play nicely with others in, in that sense. But there are uh, the issues that you uh, listed that uh, still divide us. We are not on the same page on climate change. We're not on the same page with how to deal with uh, big technology. Uh, Europe has has moved in the American direction on uh, Huawei uh, under some pressure from the United States. I think um, you know that w- is likely to continue, but there are other issues of sort of digital standards uh, and, as I mentioned before, privacy, where there's uh, real uh, real divisions. And then there's the usual messy trade uh, stuff that uh, always complicates uh, the economic relationship. I don't think those are, are going to be all that difficult uh, to bridge as well. I think the, the real question will come down to whether or not you get a, di- a serious division of labor on uh, security questions. If, uh, if the Europeans come to the United States and basically say, we're so glad you're back, uh, please uh, continue to provide uh, surplus security for us. Continue to, uh, you know, first responder on security questions and don't expect us to help you out very much vis-a-vis China. That's simply not going to work. Um, that's not going to be politically tenable in the United States. I, in fact, I believe that although a Biden administration will be much uh, more friendly towards Europe, I think the uh, bulk of American attention will be shifting toward Asia uh, and the uh, Biden administration will be wanting to move it to a slightly different division of labor vis-a-vis uh, Europe, where Europeans are expected uh, to take care of more of their security problems themselves, not constantly sort of come to Washington every time the temperature uh, heats up as well. Uh, therefore, you know, that's going to be at least a potential point of contention as well. And what's going to make this particularly difficult is that Europe itself is uh, deeply divided on a number of key questions, uh, not least uh, sort of what to do with Poland and Hungary uh, and the illiberal uh, trends there and how that, uh, you know, whether or not the European Union can continue to function uh, much as, as it has. So I worry that, that just at a moment where we would actually like Europe to be more united, be able to sort of run its own affairs, not require uh, as much American protection so that the United States can focus on other areas, uh, that it's happening at a moment where Europe itself is having more trouble sort of reaching common uh, positions and, and moving forward as well. Um, it's not, it's not going to be a, a smooth road, it seems to me, even if there's much uh, more goodwill in Washington uh, towards our European partners. I think that's accurate. There's, a, there's been a sigh of relief in most European capitals, but, um, you know, it needs to come with a recognition that, you know, there are serious differences that need to be um, tackled going forward. And of course, what you said, you know, I doubt that Europeans will ever be as united in the foreseeable future as Americans are at their most divided. Last couple of questions drawing on what you just said. First, how do you expect the new White House and the incoming administration, um, the new approach uh, that will substantiate their actions to play out regarding precisely European countries like Hungary and Poland? And secondly, but relatedly, what would this new agenda mean regarding concepts like European strategic autonomy? You know, you rightly said that Americans over time, American presidents and administrations wanted 
um, Europeans to take, uh, you know, to take steps uh, concerning the willingness and readiness to take greater and better care of their own security and defense. Um, but the moment you saw concepts like European strategic autonomy cropping up in the debate, you also found many people in Washington were reluctant to embrace the idea. So what's your take on that? Um, that's a great question. Uh, so as you say, uh, the United States has always been ambivalent about European unity, especially in the security realm. Um, you know, we complain about burden sharing, but as you said, anytime the Europeans say, okay, we're going to organize some security institutions and develop some real capabilities on our own, then we get very nervous and we want to put everything under a, a NATO framework because the United States, uh, you know, has largely uh, run NATO. Um, sort of, we want, you know, just enough European unity so it's not a problem area, so there's no real conflict in Europe, but not so much European unity that it can really stand up to the United States and not uh, not do what we tell them. And uh, I worry a little bit, uh, if I have a concern about the Biden administration, is that it is a, a group of people that are really comfortable with a set of ideas that have been around for a long time, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, uh, very much the conventional wisdom. This is not an outside-the-box foreign policy team, and I worry that they're going to still be sort of trapped in an old image of what the transatlantic relationship uh, should be like, uh, America's central role in Europe, how the United States really should be running European affairs in some uh, some large way, and that therefore they will continue to oppose the idea of Europe developing somewhat greater strategic uh, autonomy. And in fact, what we really ought to be looking for is a situation where the United States continues to have a close economic uh, relations with Europe, friendly diplomatic relations with Europe, but where Europe is largely responsible for its own security. Um, this is a, a wealthy continent. It's a populous continent. I always like to remind people that NATO's European members spend three to four times what Russia spends on defense every year. Uh, that's not a group of countries that lack the basic wherewithal to defend themselves against the kind of threats they might face most of which I believe are not the sort of conventional military threats that we used to think about, you know, back in the, in the Cold War. Europe's security problems have much more to do with uh, controlling its borders, managing migration, uh, dealing with various forms of political interference and stuff like that. It's not um, the idea that a large tank army is going to come sweeping uh, across Central Europe and head for Paris. Uh, so, Uh, The United States actually should be welcoming this, should be welcoming uh, Europe becoming uh, more united on security questions and less dependent on the United States for the reasons I indicated uh, before. Uh, And then last but not least, uh, the United States, uh, and I think the Biden team will uh, want to do this, will want to keep as many European countries as possible lined up with us vis-a-vis China. That doesn't mean necessarily uh, you know, French frigates patrolling the South China Sea. Uh, but that does mean uh, lining up with us uh, politically, uh, probably in uh, terms of technical standards, digital standards, uh, approaches to the world economy, uh, things like that. All of us recognizing that China as a wealthier and more powerful country is going to have more influence than it had 30 years ago, but also trying to make sure that that influence is not wielded in a way that undermines either Mm -hmm. the United States or our friends in Europe.
Last more informal question. We're all on lockdown. Uh, what do you do to relax, to unwind during the pandemic amidst all the teaching, speaking commitments you have? Uh, what are you reading at the moment? And in fact, if you're in the process of writing a book yourself, I am not in the process of writing a book, but an economist colleague of mine named Danny Roderick and I are working on a project on what the post-COVID world order should look like. Uh, and that's been lots of fun, uh, sort of bringing an economist and an international security uh, person together. And I've, I've already learned a lot from the process, and we're hoping to make a lot more progress on it in uh, the next year. Uh, what I'm reading right now, uh, I'm reading a book, and I'm uh, sorry I'm blanking on the author's name, but it's, uh, it's called The Weirdest People in the World. And it's uh, basically about um, how uh, the breakdown of kinship structures uh, produced by the Catholic Church uh, had enormous effects on uh, political and economic development in parts of the world. Uh, WEIRD is an acronym for, you know, wealthy, educated, I forget what, uh, uh, maybe independent, rich, and democratic. So, Think, you know, Western Europe, North America, et cetera. Uh, it's, uh, it's a really fascinating book. I'm about halfway, uh, halfway through it. I'm not sure it's right yet, but that's a, a separate question. It's really a very interesting. Uh, what do I do to relax? I, uh, I work out uh, in a gym downstairs uh, in my basement. I play some tennis uh, as safely as possible, uh, mostly outdoors until uh, winter hits. Uh, and uh, if I uh, I play some music periodically. I make noise with a set of uh, electric guitars and keyboards, and uh, occasionally, you know, until my wife yells up that I need to turn it down. <laughs> Great, many thanks. Um, I'm afraid our time is up. I would have liked to pick your brains on uh, yeah several other topics, um, but I should say heartfelt thanks. Many thanks, Professor Stephen Wolf, for joining us. Very nice talking um, with you. This was Fab's Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Uh, you can find the series on all podcast platforms. Make sure you subscribe. I will leave you with a quote by Albert Camus, which may or may not bear relevance to the situation we find ourselves in. The absurd does not liberate, it binds. Many thanks to all for listening. Have an excellent afternoon. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.